Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Monday, April 8th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo, but in a sort of unique format. We are doing a unique show this week. Uh, Scott and I were uh, honored to be invited to give a keynote at the Channel Advisor Connect show in Austin. And so we did a live presentation and show, and this episode is the audio from that live presentation. So if you want to follow along uh, with the visuals, we're including a link in the show notes uh, to our deck from the show. Uh, And hopefully most of this show will be self-explanatory to those of you listening uh, without the visuals. And this is a format we've never done before, so love to get everyone's feedback. But without any further ado, here is a live uh, in front of the audience version of the Jason and Scott show. Welcome to the Jason and Scott show. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. All right, all right, all right. Welcome to Austin. You can never go wrong in Austin doing a Matthew McConaughey impersonation. Yes, you or can. So I've been told. You just proved it. Uh, I thought I was, I got chuckles. Yeah, there's some chuckles. They knew Those are obligatory, you used to be the, the CEO chuckles. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yep. Job, uh, it's good for job security. Yeah. Cool, we're excited to be here. Uh, funny story, we were actually in Austin four weeks ago at a mall conference. Uh, and these folks called and said, we really want you to come, we're huge fans of your, sh- your show. We want you to come to this uh, outdoor mall conference. And uh, we're very customer-centric, so we gave them a list of topics we could talk about. And they chose Malageddon. We want you to talk about Malageddon. And we said, are you really sure you want us to go and get in front of like 2,000 people and talk about Malageddon? They said yes. So we had uh, the distinct honor of making like 2,000 people essentially throw up and lose all hope. So I don't know if we'll be invited back to that one or not. We're going to try not to repeat that here tonight. They wanted Malageddon. We gave them Malageddon. Boom. You're all going to be out of jobs. Okay. Uh, but that was, la- that was a month ago. Tonight we're here to talk about Marketplace Explosion. I'll be your host for that one. Uh, and then Jason's going to take us uh, through the evolution of Last Mile, the future of commerce. That's going to take about four hours. Yep. Uh, and then uh, we'll get to Q&A. Yep. Cool. So let's talk about an explosion of marketplaces. So uh, one thing we end up arguing a lot uh, at ChannelVisor, which is kind of funny, is what is a marketplace? So, for example, if a retailer has a bunch of dropship partners, is that a marketplace? I like to have a very big, inclusive definition of marketplace, which is essentially an uh, area, uh, either on or offline, so we can, we can be very flexible there, uh, where buyers go to shop from multiple sellers. Um, Jason and I, earlier, we did a site visit at uh, a local mall we'll talk a little bit more about. And there's a store called Beta. And I encourage everyone to go to this store because it's essentially a physical marketplace. It's a physical embodiment 
of a marketplace like an eBay. So, uh, but for electronic gadgets, what could be more exciting? Uh, so we were there for like literally six hours trying on everything, and they eventually made us uh, asked us nicely to leave the store. But that, we get that a lot. Um, anyway, so that's my definition of a marketplace. Uh, when I talk to a lot of brands, uh, there's more and more brands that are selling direct. They get really confused about marketplaces because until stores like Beta, there wasn't really an offline equivalent of a marketplace. So a lot of times uh, we'll end up in these discussions like, okay, in this marketplace, uh, I'm a brand and I'm going to be selling on eBay just to kind of keep the life easy. What, what's my role as a brand? So this chart is there. Most of you have already kind of sold on marketplaces, so this is pretty, pretty well uh, trodden. Uh, we do use the slang in the industry of 1P and 3P. Sometimes it takes a lot of people to, time to, to upload that. Why are marketplaces so popular? To understand this, I think you have to look back at the changing consumer behavior. Um, what does today's consumer want? You know, today's consumer is extremely digital. So we all have a supercomputer in our pocket. We've got 4G heading to 5G. We've got all the social media. We've got, you know, Instagram. Uh, in my family, when we've learned that when the meal arrives and we're at a restaurant, we don't touch the food until it's been Instagrammed. I have teenagers. Insta or it didn't happen. They're like, Dad, don't, don't touch the dessert. Okay, anyway, I'm a, so uh, what does con today's consumer want? They want selection, value, convenience, trust, uh, and a great mobile experience. And this is all really played into marketplace's strength because you have a lot of different sellers there for the buyers. Um, everyone knows all the different trends out there. I'm not going to bore you with stats. This is my favorite picture of what's happened in the mobile world. Today's family has like 20 screens going all the time. We all have to have the highest Wi-Fi because there's so much going on. Um, so this is you know, just the difference uh, in uh, whatever happens when a pope is elected. Uh, I'm not Catholic. Then uh, 2005 compared to 2013. Um, the, the most important change in consumer behavior to understand, uh, we talk about this a lot on our podcast, is the bifurcation. So since the recession in the U.S., the U.S. population has split into pretty even buckets, a value-oriented consumer and a convenience-oriented consumer. Uh, the convenience-oriented consumer, I think, is best illustrated by Amazon Prime. So Amazon has almost 100% of that convenience-oriented consumer. They tend to be in two buckets, affluent consumers with household income over 120K, and then millennials. Millennials love convenience. Then you have the value-oriented consumer. Now, because of the income disparity in the United States, the wallet, even though the population is half and half, the wallet tends to go towards that convenience side, so it's really more like 70-30 from a wallet perspective. This is one of my favorite graphics. Uh, we did show this at Mulligan. And uh, so just to or just kind of orient you, um, overall retail sales are going about 35 to 4%. And um, what you see here is the value-oriented retailers, Burlington, Ross, TJ Maxx, the dollar stores over here on this side are growing at that speed or faster. Then over here we have the wholesale clubs and then Target and Walmart are hanging in there. This is Death Valley in the middle. All that red is Death Valley. And the problem there is they're neither value-oriented or convenient. So the consumer, if you're not one of those two things very sharply in their mind, you are in a big world of trouble. So we have Sears, JCPenney, uh, companies like that. Uh, another interesting fact is uh, some of these brands like Nordstrom and Sachs, they primarily exist really to drive that value-oriented consumer to like a Nordstrom rack. Nordstrom is building more, like for every Nordstrom, they build like 15 Nordstrom's racks or something like that, right? Something like that. They're your clients, so you should yeah. know that right off the top it's of your head. It's less, but yeah. All right, okay, but less. More, more than two for one. All right, okay, there you go, boom, two for one. 
Um, now, what I don't put on here is Amazon, because Amazon's growing 30%, and that makes all the retailers kind of like pass out when you show them that stat. So, so if, we, if we change the scale of this chart to be much, much higher up to the top of the screen, then you would have Amazon. Um, Lyft just recently went public, and they're growing over 100% year over year. I imagine we'll see Instacart, Uber, um, Postmates, any of these kind of businesses with a convenience orientation are on fire because consumers love convenience in today's world. And the reason why is uh, there's psychological studies now that show if you give someone uh, a, a widget worth $100 or something, a uh, 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 service worth $100, uh, then they're actually happy having the time versus the object. That didn't count Jason and his gadgets. Yeah. So the sad thing about this, if you've ever seen the movie WALL-E, we're all going to end up like on these giant things with screens on our face eating big gulps. But Scott yeah. and I are just a little ahead of the rest of you. It could be worse. Yeah. It could be worse. Yeah. Why do v v venture capitalists love marketplaces? Um, marketplaces have another interesting aspect, and it's called the network effect. More buyers brings more sellers. You guys have probably seen this. Uh, this leads us to the famous napkin diagram. And I'll go on record. I was the first one to show this. This came to me directly from Amazon. Now every presentation has it. I'm a big trendsetter that way. So this is the Amazon flywheel. Um, so some examples of marketplaces. So today, um, it was kind of funny. We started Channel Advisor 2001. The only marketplace that was really vibrant was eBay. Since then, there's been an explosion of marketplaces. So we have what I call a pure play marketplace like eBay, pure third-party sellers. Then we have hybrids, where you have a mix of first and third party. So most of the retailers that also have a marketplace, Sears, Amazon, of course, uh, Target, etc. that's a hybrid model. We're starting to see a lot of really interesting hyper-vertical-focused models. Uh, one of my favorite is Reverb for used musical equipment. Um, there's one for fabric designs, house, for home goods, handmade goods. Dropship marketplaces, I'll go ahead and include those in the marketplace bucket. Um, and then uh, the latest flavor is social media-based marketplaces. So Facebook has kind of more of a local marketplace that they're adding a national flavor to. Uh, and then Instagram, we'll talk about later. Uh, in China, chat marketplaces are very popular, so you're, you're kind of chatting about things with a brand and you can buy right from there. Uh, and then another interesting one is Alibaba, where they have this family of integrated marketplaces. So when you go to one of their marketplaces and do a search, the whole family is there to support you. So you could go and search for, uh, I don't know, a, a drone, and you could get a person-to-person -person drone from Taobao. You could get a business-to-consumer drone from Tmall. Then you could find a manufacturer if you want to order a million drones uh, on the Alibaba B2B manufacturer marketplace. There's a lot of new exciting marketplaces. Just this year alone, we have uh, probably more marketplaces than we had like from 2001 to 2010 already announced. Uh, one I'm really excited about, and I know my colleagues at Channel Advisor are, is Target. Um, you know, at my family, uh, if over the weekend, I think we visit Target four to eight times. Sometimes we'll go to like multiple Targets. It's like really, really fun. <laughs> my wife will think of something that you would think would be in every Target, and then it won't end up being in until we get to the fifth one. Is like, that just the Star Wars toys, or is that for the rest of the family too? There may be some Star Wars toys involved too. That's a, it's a side benefit. Um, and then the other two marketplaces. Yeah, yeah, it's continuing to grow. So uh, ShopPremiumOutlets.com is a Simon Malls marketplace. And in a way, you can think of 
physical malls as an original manifestation of a marketplace. And so, you know, they're now trying to figure out what the digital manifestation is. And so we see them getting into the act. And of course, on the show, we talk a lot about digital grocery and how that's one of the categories that's really exploding right now. And Albertsons is on the forefront offering, the, to my knowledge, the first marketplace that includes uh, fresh and frozen products in the marketplace. Cool. Um, another one that's really exciting that just launched here recently is Instagram. Uh, funny story, Jason actually has this exact same jacket. So you look for him at the, uh, later wearing this, uh, and he bought it through his Instagram uh, checkout. Absolutely. He loves the tweed jacket for $129. Woo! Um, so Pinterest has filed to go public, and their S1 is live, and they're on their road show. So that should start trading in about 10 days or so. And uh, one of the big announcements is... Uh, I always get this wrong. Is it Jeremy or Jeff? Jeremy King. Jeremy King. Um, so they hired Jeremy King, who has a twin brother, Jeff. And they're both in e-commerce, and I both met them when they're at eBay, and never since then they've been commingled in my mind. Um, but anyway, so Jeremy uh, was CTO of Walmart, uh, and he was there uh, and instrumental in building their marketplace. So now he's at Pinterest. So uh, I, I tweeted just kind of jokingly, wow, I bet they're going to build a marketplace. And he said, let's talk in uh, like six months. So <laughs> take that for what you will. Maybe he has fun kid updates, or maybe he's building a marketplace. He, I don't know. We'll yeah. see. He might just like to only talk to you every six months. Yeah, that, that's uh, not uncommon. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, another thing we're really excited about is, so not only is there an explosion of marketplaces, but there's an explosion of marketplace makers. So it's a very meta thing. So uh, Miracle is one of our partners at Channel Advisor, uh, and they're, they're French. That's why they, they spell funny, um, just like your publicist people. Oui. Uh, yes, uh, and uh, um, and then so they just recently raised seventy million dollars to uh, expand their operations, and and so I think that's that we're going to just continue to see this explosion of marketplaces out there. So uh, this is a little cloud of all the different marketplaces. I was talking to some folks in the lobby, and they were kind of saying, what about the value-oriented value marketplace? Uh, the most interesting marketplace in that segment is Wish. Wish has really figured out. Everyone kind of made fun of Wish because it's this kind of less than $10 uh, high-quality goods from China um, directly, and uh, that takes a long time to get to you. But uh, their GMV just passed like $4 billion, if I'm correct. Uh, and then they also they had the genius move of they, they, they spent a couple hundred million dollars to sponsor the Lakers uh, before, and then LeBron James announced he was going there. So, that, so Wish has this kind of lucky thing going on, so I would not bet against them. Um, but that's a really interesting example of, of uh, most of the marketplaces are kind of in this convenience-oriented bucket. Wish is squarely in that value-oriented bucket, which is pretty interesting. So where are marketplaces going? So this model is so popular, it started with goods, and now we've seen it go to delivery, transportation. So Lyft and Uber are essentially a marketplace for transportation. Um, it's going into services, accommodations with Airbnbs, essentially a marketplace of places to stay, uh, and then content. Uh, and then uh, if you're interested in this topic of marketplaces, one of the best pieces of content I find out there, this is actually from our, our friends at Miracle. We write a lot about uh, marketplaces of goods at Channel Advisor. Um, Andreessen Horowitz is one of the top VCs out there. Uh, they're commonly abbreviated A16Z. Um, they have a guy, Andrew Chin, um, and he's doing a lot of writing about the future of marketplaces. Uh, he kind of sees regulated areas of industry as kind of the next growth area of marketplaces, which would be healthcare, 
Um, you know, so you know, you could imagine a marketplace of different healthcare providers. Maybe some of them come to you. Maybe you go to some of them, and more of kind of a clinic model. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see where this goes next. Uh, but there is no shortage of marketplaces out in the world these days. Jason's going to tell us about the last mile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so while we're giving Instagram parental advice, uh, if people do have kids uh, and they, you hear the words Finsta or Rinsta, it's important that you know what that is. Are you, I have are no you idea. in the know? No. Fake Instagram account, real Instagram account. Uh, so, so the parents can't see. Key, My kids don't have the fake ones. Sorry. The, yeah. You're, you've only seen the Finsta. Uh, so once you take all these orders on the marketplace, we need a way to deliver those goods. And uh, there's a lot of cost and inefficiency in how we deliver those goods. And so it's a rapidly evolving part of the ecosystem. And, um, and so we decided to kind of share where we think this is all going. And the answer is uh, we think this is really the future of the last mile. It's not creepy at all. No. I wonder why that one is a different color. I've often wondered. That's the one non-prime member. Uh, okay. It's gonna. Yeah. It's, it's just gonna, gonna like drop it from 80 feet. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, I actually, you know, not sure that this is going to be in the near term, the future of the last mile. But um, to sort of paint a picture about where I do think it's going, I thought it's helpful to kind of do a, a very fast refresher about the last mile, right? So. Um, in any category, when they first get disrupted by digital and you first start going to uh, an e-commerce model, the first thing you do is you open a fulfillment center. And if you were smart, you open the fulfillment center as close to Kentucky as possible um, because then you can deliver the goods to UPS and UPS uh, could shoot that across the country in a plane and then put it in a truck and drive it to your customer's home, right? And this was essentially the original model that most e-commerce sites had with a single fulfillment center um, and using the third-party carriers to get their goods uh, to the customer. And as we started shipping more goods and we needed to get more cost-efficient and take costs out of the system, uh, we found this really cost-effective delivery force called the United States Post Office. And apparently, I didn't realize this, but they'd been doing this for a long time before e-commerce. Um, so they, they kind of knew what to do. And so what you would do is you would use the UPS airplane to fly the goods across the country, and then you would hand the goods from the UPS guy to the mailman to do that final mile delivery. So this uh, for UPS would be called SurePost, and FedEx has a similar offering. Um, and this is still a very common uh, fulfillment model in the last mile. But if you want to get more efficient, what you want to do is take miles out of that airplane. So you started opening up more fulfillment centers so the airplane trip could be shorter. In the case of Amazon, there's about 112 of these fulfillment centers, um, and then a bunch of other kinds of, of systems as well. They have a bunch of what are called sortment centers, which are the places where they, they uh, hand from the UPS to the post office. So we cut that, that time down by having more fulfillment centers. We add costs by having to store the inventory in more than one, one warehouse simultaneously. Um, and then uh, people started saying, hey, what if there's a way to to use the stores as a fulfillment model, or stores that weren't in e-commerce said, hey, I'm Best Buy, I need to compete with Amazon. Amazon's using that old model to deliver TVs. How could I potentially deliver TVs better? Well, if I use all my stores as a warehouse and I ship products from my stores, um, I have a much shorter trip, and potentially I could hand the product 
straight from the closest store to the customer to the UPS guy. And so an interesting fact, when Target started shipping straight from store, when Best Buy started shipping straight from store, their average delivery times went from longer than uh, Amazon non-prime to shorter than Amazon non-prime. So Best Buy or Target, who primarily ship from stores, will now get goods to you faster than a non-prime order on Amazon on average across the country. The Target CEO said that over half or half their orders this Q4 were shipped from store. Yeah, um, and they're investing a lot in back office infrastructure to, to make that more efficient. So an interesting benefit of the ship from store model. Now, a sucky part of this model is you can only sell the stuff you have in the store. Um, so if you're Target and you're primarily selling the $100,000 you have, 100,000 SKUs you have in the store online, it works great. If you're trying to sell the 800 million SKUs that Amazon has, um, it's, it's slightly less awesome. Um, but uh, over time, what people have said is, huh, I wonder if there's someone even cheaper than the U.S. Post Office to deliver this stuff, right? And so now we've started to see all these third-party um, carriers emerge that are potential replacements or augmentations for the U.S. Post Office for that last mile. So that could be TaskRabbit, it could be Uber, it could be uh, specialty firms like Delive, it could be a bunch of gig economy-based services, and then in some cases... Um, it's uh, regional services with their own W-2 employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're s- continuing to see evolution of the partners fulfilling in this, this ecosystem. Um, but I mentioned that one of the big explosions in digital at the moment is grocery. So one of the, th- the key things we have to remember about grocery is, is a key thing about how Last Mile works. Um, all the products we've been talking about so far use what's called route-based delivery. So you put 300 packages on that UPS truck and that driver drives a route and he drops all of his packages off throughout his eight-hour route. Or you put 100 packages on the mail carrier's truck and he, and he delivers them over a four-hour route. Um, and so your package could arrive any time in that eight-hour window, which tends to be fine for, for TVs or shelf-stable stuff. Um, it doesn't work so well for perishables and frozen stuff that you have to put in a refrigerator right away. So if you're going to deliver perishables and frozen stuff, you generally need to do what's called a point-based delivery, which means you drive it straight from the refrigerator to the customer's house at a specific time in a very narrow delivery window. But obviously the cost of each of those deliveries goes way up. So point-based delivery for things like groceries is much more expensive than route-based delivery for things like apparel. And this is one of the primary reasons that I don't believe home delivery of groceries is ever going to be the big mainstream solution. There are for sure are markets um, where it makes sense, but nationwide, it's just not cost-effective to do these point-based deliveries for all the groceries, and customers don't want to pay even their share, uh, a share of the, the cost for the point-based delivery. Um, so what's emerging for grocery um, is what we call curbside pickup. And this is essentially when you place your grocery order at soccer practice and you drive by Walmart on your way home from soccer practice and they put your groceries in the trunk of your car and drive home. And Kroger and Walmart have both made huge investments in this model. Uh, It's the highest NPS score experience they've ever launched. Um, You'll hear the last four quarters from Walmart, they've had this enormous e-commerce growth, 40% per quarter, which even outpaces Amazon. And you look at that and you go, man, Walmart's killing it at e-commerce. They are, but most of that e-commerce is this 
grocery delivery and it's curbside pickup. So if you were watching the Golden Globes or the Super Bowl this year, you saw a big national television ad that Walmart put together uh, with the famous trucks that's, that's basically promoting this, this curbside pickup experience. Mm -hmm. um, so fun fact, if you look at all shipments in the US, uh, something like 40% of them are delivered by the post office, 30% by UPS, 20% by FedEx, and 10% by any other carrier. If you look at Amazon's mix, it's pretty interesting. 60% is UPS, 25%, I'm sorry, the post office, 25% is, is uh, UPS, only 5% of Amazon's business is FedEx, and then in, 19, in 2017, 12% of their Amazon deliveries were by Amazon-owned delivery infrastructure. Um, and they have a variety of different mechanisms for that. It could be Amazon Flex, it could be Amazon Logistics. There's a, a variety of products they have in different markets. But if you look at the 2018 numbers, which I don't have a slide for, that 12% has already grown to 20%. So, so we're seeing Amazon increasingly fulfill the last mile themselves. We see uh, services like uh, Walmart with their Spark delivery trying to deliver themselves. That's an increasingly common trend is to own your own last mile delivery. Um, and what's key to all of this is to think about how fast these companies are growing their capacity. So the US Post Office is adding almost 10% capacity per year for the last uh, seven years. FedEx is adding 5% capacity per year, UPS 3% capacity. Well, as you may know, e-commerce is growing at 16%. And Scott mentioned Amazon is closer to, depending on how you count, 25 or 30%. So there's lots of talk about Amazon getting into this business to compete with the major carriers. If they never competed with the major carriers at all, they would need to dramatically increase their own delivery capacity just to maintain their growth. The, the third-party carriers, including the post office, simply aren't growing fast enough to fulfill all the new demand that e-commerce and particularly marketplaces are driving. Um, so that's an interesting phenomenon. And I wanted to wrap up this section just kind of showing you some of the new experiences. Um, Amazon has a family of pr uh, services that, that they put in an umbrella called Amazon Key. They'll deliver a product to your home, use a smart lock to open your door and put it inside your door. Uh, if you give them your garage code, they'll open your garage and put the goods inside your garage, which this turns out to be the, the high volume use case. Not that many people have smart locks, but a lot of people have wireless garages. Um, they'll deliver cars to the, uh, packages to the trunk of your car, and they have a B2B offering where they'll literally put lockers in your condo buildings um, lobby and let you, they'll deliver to those lockers, but they'll let UPS and USPS and FedEx deliver to those lockers as well. So they're, they're really trying to beef up their game. Uh, Walmart, because again, fresh and frozen is so important uh, in their, their product mix, Walmart is actually piloting a service to deliver the goods all the way to your refrigerator. So they want a smart lock and a webcam in your house, and they'll videotape the Walmart employee going into your house, videotape, as if people have had a tape. Pretty sure that guy ate one of the bananas. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's a little too late to be checking the eggs, too, by the way. Yeah. Um, Oops. Yeah. Uh, and no Walmart customer has a Viking refrigerator. But other than that, the picture is perfect. Totally kidding. Lots of millionaires shop at Walmart. In Bentonville. Uh, in yeah. Bentonville. Yeah. Uh, and that's just the Walmart family. Exactly. Um, the... 
so I mentioned curbside pickup is the big play, right? And so originally that's, hey, let's take away some of the parking space and have a, a tent outside where we deliver the goods. Increasingly, you have to get more efficient at doing curbside pickup. And one of the big problems with curbside pickup is paying a shopper to run around the store and put all the stuff in your bag and then go put that in a refrigerator for the cold stuff and a, a, a dry space for the, the shelf-stable stuff waiting for you to come pick it up. Um, and so Walmart's had to tackle two problems. They're building separate buildings for curbside pickup that have their own picking facility in them that's automated. They have a thing called the Alphabot, and you drive up to one of these bays, and it's a little kiosk. You show your barcode or you type your phone number into the, the kiosk. The robot has stored your cold groceries and warm groceries, put them together in bags, and deliver them out to that door on demand for you to take home. Um, the, I, would, I would love to see a video of that, Jason. I, that's a great question. I wish I had thought of bringing an Alphabot video. Oh, wait. So essentially, that, that uh, storage unit has this um, scaffolding structure in it, and the, the robots move around in 3D space, grab all of your, your products, and put them in three different temperature zones waiting for you to come, come pick them up. Um, so that's pretty cool on the Walmart side. Uh, this is a partnership between Kroger, whose curbside pickup used to be called Quicklist, and uh, an um, autonomous vehicle company called Neuro. And they had a pilot just ended in Scottsdale, Arizona, I want to say. And they delivered 2,000 orders with uh, the autonomous vehicle driving on public streets and delivering uh, the groceries to the customer's home. And that kind of looks like this. Only attractive people work for last mile companies, per the videos. It's nice, yeah. Yeah. Um, so these big sort of car-type vehicles have, have uh, been in the, in the roadmap for a while. Uh, but increasingly, we're seeing these smaller autonomous vehicles. So if you live in a fancy suburb north of Seattle... Um, you can now get the Amazon Prime robot that will drive along the sidewalks and deliver your order to you via an autonomous vehicle, um, which is pretty cool. But uh, I have to say, I like the FedEx version of this yeah. even better, which is called the FedEx Same, bot, same Day Bot. Um, and this was partially designed by the guy that uh, invented the Segway, who previously had invented a lot of uh, uh, really interesting wheelchair devices for disabled people as well. Um, and this is what the same day bot looks like. I've been told it has speakers and plays this soundtrack while it's delivering. Really? Nice. Lulls you into sleep. Exactly. Over. It just makes you calm and soothed and ready for your package. And it won't kill puppy. San Francisco. Yeah, that's a Chicago pothole for sure. Yep. And the most cool part of all, the darn stairs on the porch. Olay! So we're seeing lots of innovative ways that these companies are trying to take costs out of that last mile. Um, which makes it more profitable to drive e-commerce, which essentially accelerates the pace of this digital disruption and is likely to 
completely chase, change the face of commerce. So we should maybe talk a little bit about what the future of commerce might look like. Yeah, jump into it. Awesome. Um, so we've observed uh, this collision of two trends. Every traditional retailer um, in the world, and particularly in the United States of America, are rushing as fast as possible to become a brand. Um, and so when I say this to brands, or I say, uh, they go, oh, Jason, you're high. We're not worried about that. It's this thing called private label. Uh, retailers have been doing it forever. It's not very threatening to us. And I like to point out that's not what we're talking about. Like, think about what private label is. Private label is you went to Channel Advisor Connect and you came to the, the opening day keynote and you had to listen to Jason and Scott talk for an hour and it gave you a huge headache. Hypothetical situation. Um, so you go to the local Walgreens and you're looking for the ibuprofen and right next to, uh, to the Advil on the shelf is Walbuprofen, right? And if you're not sure what Walbuprofen is, they, they spell it out for you. It's compared to Advil, right? It's the exact same product, lower price point. All the marketing for Walbuprofen is that it's on the shelf next to Advil. Exact same value prop, um, it's just a little bit cheaper, right? Pretty sure that's a Channel Advisor customer that's also. Yeah, well, how, how could they not be? 100% uh, market share, how oh. could they not be? Yeah. Um, so uh, the, that's what private label was, right? And when you tell brands, retailers are starting to build brands, they think of this. But the dirty secret is this is not what retailers are doing anymore, right? Does anyone here think that the Amazon Alexa is a private label Sony? No. No. Is anyone from Sony sponsoring the show? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, good. The Amazon Alexa is kicking Sony's ass in the marketplace. Ooh. Right? I mean, it's... Watch your it's language, way, way Salty. Yeah, I know. Uh, way, uh, but it's a unique product with its own value proposition. It's got 10,000 engineers. They're inventing a product based on what they understand uh, the market wants. And um, the, they're marketing it, right? So Amazon's the fourth highest traffic site in the U.S., 50% of the pixels on that site are often reserved for selling the, their own product, the Amazon Echo. On Prime Day, it's the number one marketed and number one selling thing. When you go to Whole Foods, the grocery store they now own, it's the pick of the season. They're, the, it's the, they're promoting the Alexa in their, their grocery stores. But even more crazy, they're promoting them in their enemies' stores, right? Like they're buying space for shopping shops inside of Best Buy to sell Amazon Echoes. This is not private label. And oh, by the way, they're paying big fancy ad agencies to hire Anthony Hopkins and Harrison Ford to promote the product on the Super Bowl. And thank God for that last step. But, um, yeah. but, but uh, this is not private label. This is a retailer creating a brand that has unique demand in the marketplace. And so you think of that with Amazon and you go, okay, I could see them doing it. But what you need to know is every retailer is doing it. I'd like you to meet five brands that Target has invented in the last five years that all sell over a billion dollars a year. Do you know how many digital native vertical brands sell a billion dollars a year? Zero. Zero to one, depending on if you count Stitch Fix or not. Okay. But, but yeah, so five brands just at Target that they've invented that all sell a billion dollars a year. We see Walmart buying all these vertical brands and creating their own brands in their space. And one of my favorites is Kroger, right? So this is called Kroger Simple Truth. It's the number one selling organic food brand in the United States of America. Um, if you live in China and shop on Tmall, 
You can buy Kroger Simple Truth. In the United States of America, Kroger is a retailer. In China, Kroger is a premium food brand that sell their products but don't have retail stores. Yeah, Costco Kirkland is wildly popular uh, in China as well as it's a top seller on Amazon, ironically enough. Exactly. If you just took the private label brands at Kroger and made them their own company, it would be the 143rd largest company on the Fortune 400. Um, so retailers are getting really serious about this brand building, um, and it's really disrupting the marketplace. So if you're a brand and some obnoxious guy from an ad agency comes in and tells you that all your partners are now very effectively competing with you, what would you do? You'd say, go direct. I, I have to compete with them. I have to build my own relationship with a customer. So meet the first brand to go direct. Um, it's this company you may have heard of called Nike in Portland, Oregon. And in 1990, they did something super controversial. They opened their own store. And back then, there were all these articles, um, hey, Nike has a death wish. They're opening their own store. They're going to compete with Foot Locker. It's huge channel conflict. Foot Locker is going to kick them out of the stores, and they're going to die. And at the time, Nike's answer was, hey, just relax, guys, just chill out. We are the worst place to buy Nikes. We charge full retail price, um, and we don't sell socks, right? Yep. Um, so that was Nike's, this is just a brand play. There's just only a flagship, just an example. Yeah, one store in Portland, just, store. just chill out. So fast forward to their 2017 investor uh, meeting, and hey, guys, our growth strategy for the foreseeable future is exclusively to sell Nike products direct to consumers. Last year, we had 80,000 retail partners. Not 80,000 stores that sell our stuff. 80,000 companies that own stores that we sold Nikes to who then turned around and sold them to consumers. This year, we're going to reduce 80,000 to 40. Not 40,000, 40. So they fired almost their entire wholesale channel. And by the way, the 40 that they would sell to, they're not selling their new best products to. You used to get the new Air Jordan release by getting in line at the mall um, at 4 a.m. On, on Wednesday morning, and you'd wave to Scott Wingo, who'd be in line at the Toys R Us for the Star Wars toys, while you waited to buy your new Air Jordans. Today, Scott's in the mall alone, because A, there's no Toys R Us, so he's standing there for no reason. Rip, um, yeah. but, but B, Foot Locker doesn't get the new Air Jordan. You have to buy the new Air Jordan from the sneaker app um, that's direct from Nike. And already 24% of their revenue is direct to consumer. They expect that by uh, 2024, that will be 50% of their revenue is direct to consumer. Yeah, so uh, another thing we talk a lot about on our uh, podcast is digital native vertical brands. And so these are brands that were born to go direct to consumer. So they're, they're not brands that started with kind of a retail channel and then added direct like Nike. Um, and uh, it's funny, for the longest time we had Bonobos, Warby, and then we had Casper, um, which started the Mattress Wars, which has been crazy. Um, but now uh, this, this has become very, very popular uh, because of the success of these brands. Uh, and this is a little chart that shows you the current world of digital native vertical brands. Um, so just in like family care, personal, clothing and apparel, everything you can imagine, there is an explosion of these. Um, so uh, more and more brands, you know, not, not all these will survive, but are also seeing interesting marriages of these. So uh, the other big trend is many of these are opening up stores. Um, so uh, Indochino is on there, which is custom men's apparel and suits and things. Um, so they have these guide shops uh, like Bonobos has, but you can go in uh, and they're, they're kind of men themed. So it's like a man cave. There's like billiards and cigars and very manly stuff. Like, Darts. Like uh, barbells Weightless. and stuff. Yeah. 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 Scott and I got a little pump before we came here. We, we're in the beta store, not yeah. in the 
We're obviously not in the Indochino <laughs> store. Uh, but anyway, uh, so, um, you know, that, so that's another interesting trend is all these guys are opening up stores. Uh, in fact, this year alone, there's been more store closures than last year. So, so over 5,000 stores have closed this year, um, but about 2,000 stores have been added. But they're these smaller digital native vertical brands opening stores like crazy. Yeah. So this leads me to kind of ask, uh, if you recall your retail history, uh, the guy that convinced Steve Jobs to open stores uh, came from Target, and his name's Ron Johnson. Um, and then he famously left Apple to go to JCPenney to help them turn around uh, in 2011. And his idea was to have turned JCPenney from this kind of big mega retailer that sold everyone else's stuff to almost like a marketplace concept. Um, and they called it Town Square. Um, and this is a little diagram of it. And so the idea was you would go, the center of this store would be events. So you could do yoga lessons, you could have like cycling, all kinds of different stuff, and a coffee shop in there. And then the edges would be brand stores. Um, and it's kind of interesting. He unfortunately uh, cranked up the burn rate of JCPenney. They almost ran out of money, and he kind of like took them to death's door, and they got rid of him in 2013. Um, but I often kind of wonder, was he right? Because I think he was just kind of about 10 years ahead of his time because we're starting to see stores look like this. When you walk into your Best Buy now, every you know you kind you almost can't get a question answered because the Samsung guy has no idea you know how to get you anything from the Apple side of things. No one knows anything about the drones uh, in that section. And you're uh, particularly bitter about that, but yeah. yeah. Then you go into the the Magnolia thing, and they just want to sell you like fancy seating. Um, so you know, so it's it's kind of one of the downsides of this is there's like 800 different employees from different companies in there, and no one, none of them can sell the other people's stuff. So, uh, but it is interesting. It has kind of become more of this store within a store concept, which is kind of where I think the future of retail is going. Yeah, uh, and and I generally agree. I feel like it's increasingly uh, difficult to make a living selling other people's stuff. Yeah, um, And so you think about it, the very beginning of retail, uh, the first carpet merchants, the first uh, um, spice merchants, they, they were selling their own stuff. Um, and it's a much more recent phenomenon that we have these wholesalers, and it feels like the evolution is back towards two things. Uh, a few aggregators in every market whose main value prop is we sell everything and we're super convenient at a super low price. Um, so that basically is the value prop for Alibaba or Amazon or Mercado Libra. Um, the, and I th feel like we're going to see a one or maybe two of those aggregators in each marketplace that'll be the everything type store. And then everyone else is going to be a smaller vendor primarily selling their own goods. And what they'll be trading on is the exclusivity and the experience. And if your kids want to buy clothes that they can put on Instagram and that no one else has, they're going to be buying from those retailers on the left. Um, if they need uh, T-shirts because their old T-shirts are worn out, they're going to be buying um, from those retailers on the right. And once again, all that uncomfortable middle, all those wholesalers... Um, like the department stores, the former specialty category killers, they're, they're just simply not going to exist. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, next slide. 
So uh, it's actually interesting we're here in Austin. One of the most interesting malls uh, that, if you're interested in this topic, uh, is actually here in town. Uh, Jason and I were there earlier today. It's called Domain Northside. It's about a 15-minute drive from here. Um, and uh, what's interesting about it is it's got uh, a fair amount of, it's about a third kind of living, kind of millennial living and hotels, about a third restaurants and hipster kind of stuff, uh, and then a third retail. Uh, and the mall portion of it, it's an outdoor mall, is operated by Simon, one of the big mall companies. Um, but it's the only place I'm aware of where you can go and see almost every one of these digital native vertical brands has set up an establishment there. Um, so you've got the classics like Bonobos, Warby, there's a Casper store. Um, this store on the bottom is the beta store. It's got the stylized B uh, that we were talking about. Um, there's a luggage company. Um, they may be close to five, six hundred million. They're, they, they could be closing in on a billion called Away. Um, this revolutionized luggage um, with a direct uh, to consumer brand. Uh, am I missing someone? Uh, Peloton. There's a really nice Peloton store there uh, where you can see the bike and the treadmill. Uh, I feel like I'm missing one. Free People. Yep. Uh, uh, so, I mean, yes. what's. To me, what's interesting, there's 175 stores in this mall. We visited eight in the time we had. We visited one aggregator that was basically a marketplace, and we visited seven other stores that were predominantly selling their own stuff, right? Yeah. And so to me, it's a, a little sort of snapshot of the direction that we're going in. Yeah, and then if you make it to New York, another mall that everyone's excited about is the uh, Hudson Yard. Is yeah. Right? Yeah, so it's Hudson Yard, and they're very, don't call it a mall, they're very sensitive about that. No one, no one wants to be a mall right now. So it's the, the Hudson Yard outdoor stores. Bitcoin, healthcare, yeah. <laughs> cyber. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's supposed to have a whole level that's uh, a lot of these brands going direct. Uh, I haven't been there, but I look forward to going to that as well. Yeah. With that, we have about 10 minutes to open it up to Q&A. Any questions? I think we have mic runners. I don't know how this is supposed to operate. Yep, yep. there are mics out there, but unfortunately... You just yell them to us. Yep. Uh, go ahead, guy with his hand up. Yep, so the question was, what do you see in the future around AR, VR, uh, and mixed reality shopping online? First of all, I'll say Jason lives in his own reality, so we call that, that JR. Yeah. But what do you think the about the other realities? Field. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think it's very dangerous to talk about XR, where it's all the R's. Uh, because I actually think their trajectories are very different. Um, I am not very excited about virtual reality shopping. Um, so for a variety of reasons, uh, at the moment, not very many people own VR technology in their home. So this is primarily an in-venue experience. Lots of, I have a feeling that guy does. Yeah, as do these two guys. <laughs> um, but it, as I have to tell all my, my colleagues at the big ad agency, we are not the target market. Mm. Um, the... So virtual reality in venues is super uncomfortable. Like you have to, you know, put on this awkward looking stuff and not uh, have any sensory feelings around you while a bunch of customers are watching you shop. Um, largely to simulate an experience that you could physically create in the environment. Um, so to me, VR is a little gimmicky. Now, 10 years from now, if we're all using VR headsets at home to play video games, then of course we'd want to figure out how to publish shopping experiences onto those as well. But I don't think shopping is going to be the use case that's going to drive adoption of VR. Um, and I think VR in venue is mostly a silly gimmick. Um, but, on the, uh, but AR, I'm very excited about. And actually, we're starting to see some really good AR shopping experiences. So as we transition from 
analog shopping in stores to, to digitally enabled shopping, one of the things that comes up is customers want way more information before they make a purchase decision. Most famously, they want ratings and reviews. Mm -hmm. So when you go shopping in a Sam's Club, where are the ratings and reviews? There, there aren't On any. Your phone. Yeah, but about 20 miles from this venue is uh, a Sam's Club now, which is the next generation Sam's Club. Uh, and you have to have the Sam's mobile app to get into that store. And part of the reason is because they have an AR experience. You point the camera at any products in the store and it supplements the, the picture of the product with all of those digital attributes. So you can read the ratings and reviews, you can get the, the richer product information, um, and that's also how you check out. So there's no cashiers in the store, you, it's self-checkout. That reminds me, the, the domain Northside has an Amazon Books where they pull down all the, the social reviews and, and share them on a digital fact tag right there in the store. Um, so that's another way of achieving it without AR. Yeah. Uh, another really good use of AR is Wayfair um, has the AR app where you can see, uh, you know, kind of visually how a piece of furniture is going to look in your house. Um, and they've been, been running TV ads on that, I've noticed. So yeah. um, that seems to be... Another particularly good one is um, the Apple camera now has highly accurate depth sensors on the front camera. Mm -hmm. So what that means is when I'm in selfie mode, not only can it see my face, it knows the exact measurements and proportions of my face. It's how it does the login authentication. Yep. So if you're Warby Parker, you can use all that detailed information to perfectly render, to both recommend the right frames for your particular face and then perfectly render those frames, uh, frames in AR on your own face. Um, and shopping for glasses uh, is particularly difficult because Without the glasses, you can't see, so when you try on the glasses in the store, you, you don't know what you look like in them. Ironic. Yeah. Any other questions? Uh, go ahead, sir. All right, so if I understand the question, Spitz guaranteed, where's David? David Spitz guaranteed voice commerce would be 100% of e-commerce by this year. Uh, do you agree or disagree? Uh, for the first time in my entire life, I have to disagree with David. <laughs> I may have exaggerated the question yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the real question was, where are we in the, in the cycle of voice commerce? Yeah, uh, so I'll let you weigh in, but um, I, I, I think there's some really interesting and useful use cases for voice commerce, but in general, it's another technology that I would say is overhyped at the moment. Um, so the, I, I, I call the, the products that are best for voice commerce the Goldilocks zone. There's a lot of complicated products we buy that have a bunch of attributes and proprietary names, and no one's ever going to say, Alexa, order a Lily Verbana uh, leopard skin print in a size 3 for two-day delivery, and let me tell you my promo code. Right? Oh, like, like a personal situation you've had. Yeah. Uh, hypothetical. Just oh, okay. made that up right. on the fly. Okay. All right. Um, the... Like, there are just too many attributes and proprietary words. It's not likely that that first-time purchase for that dress is going to happen on voice commerce. Conversely, there's a lot of products that you don't need voice commerce for. Uh, Walmart and Amazon know how much toilet paper we use. They're gonna, uh, they have patents on predictive shipping. They're just, the, the toilet paper is just going to show up when we need it. The washing machine is going to order the detergent when it needs it, right? And so there are all these super easy to predict, um, very consistent consumption model things that you won't need voice commerce for. There are all these really complicated things that voice commerce isn't well suited for. Where voice commerce is really going to play is the middle between those two things. 
Alexa, double my usual peanut butter order. Alexa, cancel my grocery order. I'm going to mom's house for Thanksgiving. Um, Alexa, I just ran out of mayonnaise, right? Like, so, like some of those manicuring things are going to work. And of course, Alexa, start my Starbucks order or Alexa, call my Uber are the two real use cases for voice commerce today. Yeah, I think voice commerce, um, I agree with the Goldilocks zone. I, I think it's more, even more interesting for services because uh, you know, Amazon is very interested in services. They're starting to do a lot around home services. So you could say something like, you know, Alexa, I need a plumber today because I don't really care which plumber I get, to be honest with you, as long as it's like four stars and up. Yeah. Um, and I, but I need. And their know, pants are at least this high. You got to have that. Yeah. 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 No, no crack attack. And then uh, Alexa, I need a plumber available today. Uh, no crack attack. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So, so I think it's going to be more of a services orientation where Amazon can then be able to look into the availability of the plumbers uh, and um, you know, when, they, when they help you narrow it down and be a personal assistant into this sea of choices, um, what you don't want to have is like, you know, in a situation where you're having like an 80-word conversation with Alexa, like you yeah. know, ordering a Starbucks. Like, Alexa, I'd want a Starbucks. Well, Jason, what size? Venti. Yeah. Uh, what's your milk choice? <laughs> and then you're like 2%. Like, uh, do you want any sweetener? And then you know, by the 50th choice, you're just like, I just want a Starbucks. Yeah. Can I get a Starbucks to tide me over while I'm telling you the Starbucks I want? Yeah. Yep. But Alexa, wash my car. Makes perfect sense. I love that. Yeah. In, okay, next question. There's a waiver back there. Uh, waiver back there. Go ahead. Uh, we actually have an exciting 3D printing story. Kind of. Awesome. So the question was... Where does 3D printing and yeah. in-home in-home fabrication play in the yeah. future of commerce? So this is a really uh, real-world example. So we were in the, uh, not shockingly, in the over in the Fairmont uh, in their little coffee shop, and they have a 3D. Wait, they put you up in the Fairmont? Yeah. Uh, in the yeah. You're you're not over there. The courtyard. No. Okay. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> the free breakfast. Yeah. The manager yeah. special. Yeah. Um, you can get Bud Light. Yeah. All right. Anyway, uh, so uh, they have a 3D printer for latte foam and. Uh, Jason kind of semi-jokingly asked the lady, can you customize that? And she said, sure, download our custom foam app, uh, which had a name like Ripple or something. Yeah. Uh, and you can upload any image off of there. So we're going to be able to have Jason lattes tomorrow. So yeah. I'm pretty Check excited. Twitter Jason's, imagine Jason's face in your latte foam. That's Twice uh, the deliciousness. So that's, that's a real-world example of why 3D printing can change the world. Yeah. Uh, Slightly more serious answer. Um, the future is really tough. Like I, I think it's very clear that at-home fabrication is going to be a major part of commerce. I just have no idea when, and I'm pretty confident it's not in the near future. So, well, don't the shoe guys have it where um, you can go see? So a lot of the shoes. Uh, so it's the Nike Air Thread. Something, something. Yep. Um, exactly. Uh, so Nike and Adidas both have shoes that are essentially 3D printed. Um, now, it's a Weave 3D printer, um, but it is essentially, and you can even go have your foot scanned, uh, I believe, and then have a custom pair. Uh, and is that part of the Nike Experience Store? Uh, it is part of the Nike House of Innovation, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, a, that's a common progression. So uh, I, I, I have this really aspirational origin story from my marketing career. I started a blockbuster entertainment, which... Every, everyone has to have a slide. Digital disruption killed Blockbuster. Um, the, we had this premise that way before everyone's downloading movies at home and putting Blockbuster out of business, that Blockbuster could download the movies and video games 
and make them in the store, right? Uh-oh. And and that uh, so it it's much easier to get bandwidth to those 4,000 stores before we get bandwidth to 60 million homes. That proved to be true, but eventually both happened. And in the same way, today we're seeing a lot of 3D printing and other technologies for more for product augmentation than product creation happen in stores. So you mentioned uh, all the shoe guys are doing it. It's particularly important because all the kids want products that are unique to them that they can put on Instagram that no one else has. And so augmentation is a huge opportunity, um, which parenthetically, our friends at Amazon don't really support yet. So that's interesting. Um, The uh, Adidas has a weaver that makes custom sweaters um, for folks. There's a retailer called Ministry of Supply that have a super sophisticated weaver that in their store in Boston will make you a custom sport coat. Um, So we're starting to see fabrication and augmentation in the store. And many years after that, we'll see a lot of those same things in the home. It does not feel like the thing I would be investing in right now or really defending against right now because it, it feels like the, both the technology and the, the installed base have a ways to go. Yeah, if you're into 3D printing, um, this is totally unrelated, but just kind of a geeky thing. The coolest 3D printing company is called Carbon, uh, and there's this bath of stuff, some kind of chemical, and they can shine light through it, and then things grow out of it. It's very like Terminator 2. Remember the liquid Terminator? No. Uh, so things just kind of grow out of there. So uh, and that's really useful for manufacturing situations where you have this you know, one-of-a-kind thing you need to build, and they can just like grow it out of this bath of chemical stuff. For sure. Pretty, it's a, yeah, you can just spend like six hours watching videos of this thing. It's pretty they, are, they are fun to watch, especially if you can time-lapse them so you don't have to wait all six yeah, hours. Yeah, absolutely. But Scott, it's <laughs> going to come as a shock to no one that it's happened again we've wasted a perfectly, perfectly good hour of our audience's time. Cool. Thank yeah. you, everyone. Have a great Channel Advisor Connect. Yeah. Bye. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.